3: Hey there, History fans! We're off for President's Day, but don't worry. We've got plenty of classic shows to tide you over. Please enjoy these flashback episodes from the TDI HC Vault, and be sure to tune in tomorrow for a brand new episode. See you then!
0: This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class a show that pays tribute to people of the past by telling their stories today. I'm Gabe Lussier, and today we're celebrating the life of one of the finest actors to ever grace the silver screen, a true pioneer of American cinema, Mr. Sidney Poitier. The day was February 20th, 1927. Legendary actor Sidney Poitier was born in Miami, Florida. His parents were farmers from the Bahamas, and they routinely traveled to Miami to sell their tomato crop. On their visit in early 1927, Sidney's mother went into labor several months early, causing her son to be born a dual citizen of both the United States and the Bahamas. Although he was born in Miami, Sidney Poitier grew up on Cat Island in the Bahamas, the youngest of nine children. In 1937, his family moved to Nassau after the state of Florida banned the import of tomatoes from the Bahamas. To help make up for that lost income, Sidney dropped out of school at age 12 and took a job as a water boy for a group of day laborers. Over time, his parents noticed he was getting in a lot more trouble than he had in school. They worried their son was heading down the wrong path in the Bahamas, so when he turned 14, they arranged for him to live in Miami with one of his older, married brothers. As a black teen growing up in the Bahamas, Sidney Poitier had never experienced racial segregation. He had been able to travel freely without being questioned, to enter any establishment, and to take whichever seat he wanted. But by returning to the land of his birth, he had suddenly become a second-class citizen, one who was subject to the same rules and restrictions as other black Americans in the South. He later reflected on his early encounters with American racism, saying, quote, It was all over the place, like barbed wire, and I kept running into it and lacerating myself. By the time he turned 15, Sidney Poitier had ditched Miami in favor of New York City, but life in the Big Apple wasn't much easier. He had arrived with just $3 in his pocket, and so, desperate for work, he took on whatever odd jobs he could find. Dishwasher, delivery man, ditch digger, you name it. The little money he made was never enough, and sometimes the only shelter he could afford on cold nights were pay toilets. A year later, in late 1943, Sidney Poitier lied about his age and enlisted in the U.S. Army. For the next year, he served as an orderly in a medical unit at a veteran's hospital on Long Island. In 1945, he obtained a discharge and returned to New York, where he took an interest in theater. He saw a notice in the Amsterdam News that the American Negro Theater was looking for new actors. On a whim, he decided to audition. It, uh, didn't go so well. He read slowly and struggled to pronounce longer words. He was also hard to understand due to his strong West Indian accent. It was such a poor showing that one of the theater's founders, Frederick O'Neill, leapt onto the stage, snatched the script from his hand, and marched him to the door. The furious director said that Sidney was wasting everyone's time and suggested that he get a job as a dishwasher instead. That struck a chord with Poitier, who had worked as a dishwasher before joining the army, and had indeed recently returned to the job. In a 2014 interview with the American Academy of Achievement, the actor recalled the profound impact that encounter had on his life. He said, How did he know that
4: I was a dishwasher? He suspected. I didn't tell him I didn't say anything about dishwashing. And I realized then and there that what he said was his perception of my worth. He perceived me to be of no value beyond something that I could do with my hands. And while he was correct in his anger to characterize me that way, I was offended. I was offended deeply. And I said to myself, I have to rectify that. I have to show him that he was wrong about me. I decided then and there that I was, this is a wild decision I made, of course, but I did decide then at that moment on that street that I am going to be an actor just to show him that he was wrong about me. And then I would give up the acting because I have, I'm not, what do I want
3: to be an actor for? And so, determined to prove his worth, Sidney Poitier bought a radio and spent the next six months practicing American Annunciation as he heard it from radio announcers. He also got reading lessons from an older gentleman he worked with at the restaurant where he washed dishes. Finally, after months of preparation, the actor auditioned again and while it went much better than the first time, he was still rejected. Undeterred, Sidney Poitier made a bold if not humbling move. He volunteered to work as a janitor without pay in exchange for a chance to study in the theater's acting school. The directors agreed, and Poitier went on to appear in a series of productions at the American Negro Theater. His big break came in 1946, when he was cast in an all-black Broadway production of the ancient Greek play Lysistrata. Four years later, Sidney Poitier made his big-screen debut in No Way Out, where he played the role of Dr. Luther Brooks, a black doctor who treats a bigoted white criminal. The movie set the tone for much of the actor's career. Rather than accepting demeaning roles that catered to racial stereotypes, he would primarily play saintly characters. Pillars of manners and morals who would prove the stupidity of racism by responding to its slights with poise and civility. For example, in 1958's The Defiant Ones, Poitier plays a prisoner who escapes while shackled to a racist white inmate, played by Tony Curtis. Why, you're just too sensitive, man.
4: I'm too nothing. That's right, you're too nothing is right. But I got a little advice for you, man, because I like you, man. You got to take things as they are. You can't keep fighting them unless you want to be unhappy. I see you got a lot to learn, boy. Like you, living in that fancy hotel. Yeah, like me, living in that fancy hotel. You think they're gonna let me in that fancy hotel, too? Oh, sure, they're gonna let you in that hotel. Through the back door if you got a pail and a mop. And you through the front door just long enough to collect your tip.
3: What's eating you? Just because I called you a there? Yeah. Over the course of the movie, Curtis's character gradually comes to recognize the humanity of his partner, and the pair eventually form a strong bond. At the time, the movie was heralded for its provocative theme of racial harmony, and Poitier actually earned an Oscar nomination for Best Actor for his role, the first time an African-American man had gotten a nod in the lead category. Roles like that made crucial inroads to Hollywood for black actors who followed Poitier. But during the height of the Civil Rights Movement, many saw Poitier's characters as too measured and restrained in the face of virulent racism. His characters, though clearly angry beneath the surface, always managed to keep their cool. They countered injustice with reason and responded to intolerance with forgiveness. This was interpreted by many as a way to accommodate white audiences and to reassure them that the only correct way to push back against racism was with a quiet, measured, dignified response. It's an understandable criticism, but not a very charitable one. While limiting and by no means perfect, the roles played by Poitier were a huge step up for the portrayal of blackness in Hollywood. The weight of that racial representation was something the actor shouldered throughout his career, and it wasn't a responsibility he took lightly. As he later explained, quote, I felt very much as if I were representing 15, 18 million people with every move I made. If the fabric of society were different, I would scream to high heaven to play villains and to deal with different images of Negro life that would be more dimensional. But I'll be damned if I do that at this stage of the game. All I can say is that there's a place for people who are angry and defiant, and sometimes they serve a purpose, but that's never been my role. Although he was reserved and non confrontational by nature, Sidney Poitier was still a passionate, outspoken advocate for racial justice and civil rights. He took part in the 1963 March on Washington, and a year later, During what was known as the Freedom Summer, Poitier worked with fellow actor Harry Belafonte to raise and deliver $70,000 to black rights activists in Mississippi. They wound up being chased out of town by armed members of the Ku Klux Klan, but luckily they got away unharmed. That same year, Sidney Poitier made history by becoming the first African American to win the Academy Award for Best Actor for the role he played in Lilies of the Field. Poitiers starred as Homer Smith, a former GI turned wandering handyman who gets tricked and later charmed into helping a group of German nuns build a chapel in the Arizona desert.
4: Led before Pilate. Then they crucified him. But he rose on Easter. Amen. Amen.
3: It took 38 years, but in 2002, Denzel Washington became the second African-American actor to win the award for his role in Training Day. In his acceptance speech, Washington saluted Poitier, saying, I'll always be chasing you, Sidney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do, sir. Nothing I would rather do. In his own career, Sidney Poitier continued to break the boundaries of Hollywood. In 1967, he appeared in three of the top-grossing films of the year, To Sir With Love, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and In the Heat of the Night. The success made him one of the highest-paid actors of the era, and one of the most reliable box office draws. Audiences who longed to see a more confrontational side of Poitier got their wish in In the Heat of the Night. In that film, the actor plays one of his most famous characters, Virgil Tibbs, a Philadelphia detective who winds up investigating a murder in Mississippi alongside a lazy racist sheriff, played by Rod Steiger. In one of the film's most powerful moments, the sheriff calls the black detective a racial slur, and then mockingly asks what they call him up in Philadelphia. He indignantly responds,
4: They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs! Take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now! I'll have the FBI lab send you the report on this. Not that it'll make any difference. I'll take that. Hope oh, you won't. I'm sending it in. Personally.
3: In the late 1970s, Sidney Poitier decided to step back from acting and try his hand at directing instead. His efforts didn't win over many critics, but he did land a few box office successes, including the 1980 comedy Stir Crazy, which featured Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor as a bumbling pair who were sent to prison by mistake. In 1988, Poitier returned to acting after a decade's absence and appeared in a series of action thrillers, the best of which was probably Sneakers in 1992. Still, his greatest late-career work was actually for two made-for-TV movies. In 1991, he played the lead role in Separate But Equal, an ABC drama about the life of Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Six years later, he gave an acclaimed performance as Nelson Mandela in the TV movie Mandela and de Klerk, which followed the final years of Mr. Mandela's imprisonment in South Africa. Poitier's final role was in The Last Brickmaker in America, a 2001 TV movie about a widower whose job is becoming obsolete. A year later, on the same night Denzel Washington won the award for Best Actor, Sidney Poitier was presented with an honorary Oscar for, quote, his remarkable accomplishments as an artist and as a human being. Eight years later, in 2009, The actor received an even higher award, the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom. During the ceremony, President Obama remarked that, quote, Sidney Poitier does not make movies. He makes milestones. Milestones of artistic excellence. Milestones of America's progress. He not only entertained, but enlightened, shifting attitudes, broadening hearts, and revealing the power of the silver screen— To bring us closer together. The trailblazing actor, America's first black movie star, passed away on January 6, 2022, at the age of 94. It's hard to overstate the importance of Sidney Poitier's life and career. His commanding presence, simmering rage, and quiet humility brought a new, much needed perspective to the American film industry and to society as a whole. We've talked a lot today in terms of racial progress and historic firsts, and that's appropriate given the many breakthroughs that Poitier achieved in his lifetime. But it's worth noting that he was a great enough actor for his films to stand on their own apart from historical context. The depth of emotion he poured into his performances is truly stunning. He delivered a complex depiction of playfulness sarcasm, outrage, melancholy, and pure joy, often layered one on top of the other. The work of Sidney Poitier is a reminder that no one is just one thing, no matter what the expectations of society and our harshest critics may tell us. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. Special thanks to listener Brian Denny for suggesting the topic of today's show. He actually shares a birthday with Mr. Poitier, so happy birthday, Brian. And if anyone else has a historical topic they'd like to hear on the show, you can send your suggestions to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
2: or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Neil Strauss,
3: host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half.
0: This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi,
1: I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, a show that makes time travel a little bit easier. The day was February 20th, 1805. American abolitionist Angelina Grimke was born. She's not to be confused with her great niece, Angelina Weld Grimke, who was born in 1880 and was a writer who gained popularity during the Harlem Renaissance. The Angelina Grimke we're talking about today was a white Southern woman who was an activist and women's rights advocate. Grimke was born in Charleston, South Carolina, to a slave-owning family. She was the 14th and last child born to John Foshol Grimke and Mary Smith Grimke, Her father was a Revolutionary War veteran and a prominent politician and judge in South Carolina. Her mother came from a wealthy family that included governors. Grimke's family had a home in Charleston and a plantation in the country. Enslaved people worked the land, producing rice and cotton. They also worked as household servants. Grimke's parents were fully invested in following the dictates of white upper-class society in the South, her father prohibited Angelina and her sisters from getting an education. Angelina was very close to her older sister, Sarah. As they witnessed the atrocities of slavery that their parents were complicit in, their opposition to the institution grew. In 1819, Sarah went to Philadelphia and New Jersey with their father, who was sick and seeking medical assistance. Their father died in New Jersey but Sarah stayed in Philadelphia for a while and was introduced to Quakerism. Quakers are members of a religious group with Christian roots in mid 17th century England. They were largely concerned with human rights and often held anti-slavery views. Sarah soon joined the Quakers, returning to South Carolina briefly before she moved to Philadelphia. Following Sarah's lead, Angelina also became a Quaker. In 1829, After having difficulty advocating for the anti-slavery cause in the South, she also moved to Philadelphia. There, she joined the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. In 1835, Grimke wrote a letter to William Lloyd Garrison, a founder of the American Anti-Slavery Society and publisher of the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. In the letter, she praised Garrison and wrote about slavery and abolitionism. Garrison published it without her consent, and it got a lot of pushback from the Quaker community, who did not approve of her radical support of abolitionism. Despite this disapproval and the fact that she had not asked for her letter to be printed, the letter gained national attention, and Angelina became more involved with the abolitionist movement. She read more anti-slavery texts and went to lectures. In 1836, she published the pamphlet An Appeal to Christian Women of the South, condemning slavery and urging Southern women to free enslaved people and pay them wages. She continued to write abolitionist pamphlets and speak out against slavery. Angelina and Sarah began giving anti-slavery lectures and organizing women's anti-slavery groups around the Northeast. They toured in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, Though many of their lectures were attended by women only, some of their lectures were attended by men and women. Their lectures were already controversial since they said slavery was anti Christian, exposed the horrors of slavery, and criticized slaveholding Southerners and Northerners who were complicit in the system. But their lectures in front of so called mixed audiences also fueled accusations of unwomanly behavior the sisters began to link the anti-slavery cause to the issue of women's rights. They continued writing and spoke at the anti-slavery convention of American women, even as their role as outspoken women in the movement was heavily criticized. Angelina married Thomas Weld, another abolitionist, in 1838. and the next year, the sisters published the book American Slavery As It Is, Testimony from a Thousand Witnesses. They also continued circulating anti-slavery petitions and attending meetings. But they stopped giving public lectures on the cause and retreated from the forefront of abolitionist activism. Angelina supported Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War and advocated for women's rights and suffrage after the war. She also helped run a couple of schools with Sarah. She died in Boston in 1879. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully, you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Have a hard time staying present as you mindlessly scroll through social media? Lucky for you, we're stuck in the past. At TDIHC Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our email address is thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you tomorrow, same place.